Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 18. So if you have your Bible, turn there. Uh, we're making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And as you get there, just a, a quick hello to those at the downtown campus or checking, us, uh, checking in with us online. Uh, we're excited. I'm excited about this passage this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, kind of just connecting with us at River Tree, we are using Matthew's Gospel as a way to think through our Sunday morning teaching and really just going section by section, passage by passage through this, through this gospel. And so we're, um, we're, we're covering things that are challenging at times. Uh, we're, we're hitting themes that Jesus is bringing forward that Matthew wants us to hear over and over. And so uh, approaching the passages in the, in the scriptures like this, I just think it has a lot of value for us because it allows us from Sunday to Sunday kind of to know even as a body where we're going, uh, to be able to study on our own personally throughout the week, come in and uh, hear God's word as a church and as a church family, and then leave here and go into our small groups, our grow groups, going like, okay, Lord, what we heard this morning in your word, how do we apply that? How do we take that uh, in your word and then begin to see it kind of flesh, it, flesh its way out in our lives? And so this is going to be a passage too that I think is going to have uh, some really good challenge as well. And so let's jump in. Uh, verse one it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling him, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye then with two eyes to be thrown into the hell into the hell of fire. So last week, kind of where we were in our teaching and where Matthew takes us through the end of Matthew chapter 17, last week we talked about this identity that all Christians have in Christ as um, bringing this kind of flexibility to our lives. And when you hear the word flexibility, if you're over 40, right, that sounds really exciting to you. But the flexibility that Jesus is talking about is, is, is a freedom, that there's a, a freedom that comes to our life, an ability to move and to adjust that Christ brings to our lives. He had said to Peter earlier, he says, who does the king receive taxes from? His children or others. And Peter says others. And then Jesus says exactly right. The sons are free. And so there's a change in identity. There's a shift in something that happens in the Christian's life because of what Christ is making available to us, that we become sons and daughters of the King. And when we become sons and daughters of the King, the way in which we make our decisions, the way in which we think about our lives also changes and adjusts. We now are free, and we're also free to limit our lives because our goal now is to share the gospel. Our goal now is to love others. 
And now we make our life's decisions based upon that new goal. The purpose of seeing the gospel go forward, the purpose of seeing other people understand who Jesus is. And this is this freedom. We've been set free, but we also manage our freedom to see how it's impacting others, how it's loving other people, how it's leading other people to Christ. That's what we begin, to share the gospel. We are free to limit our freedom to this end. So last week we were free and flexible, and now we get to this passage about greatness. And it starts with this cute object lesson, right? There's a conversation about greatness. Jesus brings a child and sets it in front of them. But then it has this, it turns, right? There's this drowning yourself in a sea. You're chopping off hands and feet. You're gouging out eyes. It ends with hellfire. It's a passage meant to get our attention, right? This is in the way it starts and how Jesus moves to where it ends up is certainly one that's meant to provoke us and to challenge us. So let's start with this question about greatness. The disciples were having a question about what chair am I going to sit in? What's going to be my role when the kingdom comes? Kingdoms have structure. There are people at all levels. There's people at a high level, a medium level, a low level. Kingdoms, governments, they have structure. There's a president, there's a cabinet. These are important people that help administer the kingdom and and the rules and the reign. So Jesus has just told Peter in the previous passage that you are a son of the king. So now it makes sense that Peter's thinking about, hey, what does that mean to be a son of the king? There's a certain implied royalty. There's a certain implied position and prominence that comes with that, a certain greatness that comes with being a son or daughter of the king, right? So this is the conversation that they're beginning to have. There was an honor there. And to know this, that Jesus' culture was steeped in honor. Everywhere you went, the question of who was to be honored, who was great, who was to be noticed, was part of the community. An Old Testament scholar said this. He says, at all points in worship, in administration of justice, at meals, in all dealings, there constantly arose the question of who was greater. And estimating the honor due to each was a task which had to be constantly fulfilled and was felt as very important. So everywhere you went in Jesus' day, work, school, temple, everywhere, everywhere you went, the question of who's to be honored, who's to be recognized, who's to be noticed was part of the culture. Right? Honored seats for those that had done righteous things. Honored seats for those that were skillful with the scriptures. Honored seats for those who had done and achieved great things or knew people that had done and achieved great things. Right? It was always this kind of culture of honor and reverence and esteem of who was greater. We see this. So the disciples want to know, hey, where are we going to sit? What kind of honor are we going to experience? What, what seat are we going to be in? And upon hearing this, Jesus takes a child He says, I hear you guys talking about greatness. So he takes a child and he puts the child center stage. He says, you want to know about what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven? It's this. It's this child. This, this child. This child is great. Be like this. You want to know what greatness looks like? Be like this child. And so I think to appreciate the illustration even more so, what Jesus is saying to the disciples and to us is to know that Jesus' culture was not very kid-sensitive. Our, our culture is almost kid-centric, right? 
a lot of our lives, a lot of our uh, thoughts about what we give ourselves to, our energy, our efforts are around our kids. We, we, we love them. I, I, honestly, I think Christianity helped kind of bring children from kind of the back to a place where they were seen as important and valuable. But even more so in our culture, we live vicariously through them. We leverage our lives so that they might have more things than we did to resource them, to give them more opportunities, more privilege than we ever had before. Like it's just, we're, we're disposed in this way to see the sensitivity, but not in Jesus' day. There was a Jewish saying in, in Jesus' day, listen to this, late morning sleep, midday wine, Children's chatter and sitting in the assembly of the ignorant ruin a person. So here we have the activities of children thrown in with oversleeping, day drinking, and hanging out with stupid people. <laughs> this is it. Like, this is the category. This is how people thought about the activity of children, their lives around children. Children were certainly to be, you know, maybe not even seen, but certainly not heard. Right? So this is what, when Jesus puts this child before the disciples, he says, if you want to know what greatness is, it's this. If you want to see greatness, if you want to be great, let me show you a child. Right? This is meant to just shock. It, it's, it certainly comes before them as, as a surprise because Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, let me show you somebody who's not great. That's great. Let me show you someone not great. That's greatness. He's not talking about this child's innocence or purity. It's really simple. He's talking about this child's smallness, the child's stature, the smallness of the child. Because little kids know that they're little. Little kids know they're little. I can remember these mornings around our family when our kids were young, Jennifer and I getting up, making breakfast, getting ready for the day, headed out to work, and having this conversation from time to time with the kids, like, hey, mom and dad are going to work. What job are you going to? How are you going to make money today? What are you gonna do? And they're all like, we don't work, we're little. Like, <laughs> like you do that, like, we're just kids. That's what moms and dads do. Like, there's this sense that a child knows they're little. They know that you're the better provider. They know that you're the protector. They know that you're the mom or dad, they're just Little, you give oversight, you provide, you guide. K kids live outside this normal construct of kind of social order and what's appropriate. I, I was at lunch. I saw a young child hear their favorite song over the restaurant's stereo system, and they just stood up in their chair and started dancing. Like, no, no concept of like, what's normal right now? What's appropriate? I'm walking down the children's hallway just a few weeks ago, and I spot Thatcher Hartsfield. Is Thatcher here? Hey, Thatcher. I spot Thatcher. He's four years old. His eyes kind of see me. I see him. We lock together. He turns to his mother, hands all of his Sunday school material to her, and he races for me. I get ready for the impact, and before you know it, spider monkey, he's up on my shoulder like we're wrestling. He's like, let's wrestle. And I mean, he is fully on in the hallway I don't do that with Jay. Like when I see his dad walking down the hallway, like well, that's not exactly what we do. Set our stuff down and start grappling. But like he just like for him, like what we're doing right now is most important. It's wrestling. No sense of etiquette, what's normal, what's appropriate in this, mom in this moment. And this is what kids do. Kids lack this grasp of social status. They, they, they lack this grasp of like what's appropriate because of this person's rank or significance. 
they don't have any concept of that until they find out about line leader. Line leader. <laughs> My kids went to preschool, and I loved, I loved watching that experience for them, where they moved from the house into this class with other kids and a teacher. And, and what happens when they, like, we, we, you don't get in lines typically at home. That's something that you do at school. And so all of a sudden when they line up somewhere, there's this delight, right? Excitement in all of the kids because they know if we're lining up, we're going somewhere, right? That's, that's the thing that they're experiencing. We're about to go somewhere. And when you're young, that's really all you care about is where are we going and who are we with? Until you find out about line leader, and when the concept of line leader is introduced to our kids, it's no longer about where are we going and who are we with, but what position am I in this line? Am I first? Am I second? Am I last? And it changes. It changes. No longer are we worried about where are we going or who are we with. Now it's like I need to know where I rank. Am I first? Am I last? Where are you going? Who are you with? But now it's about position. I wonder if this is something that Jesus is giving back to us in this passage. I wonder if Jesus is helping us in this moment to realize that for us to be great is to do important things. It's to be recognized. It's to get trophies. It's to have accolades. It's to grow companies. It's to have a bigger budget, bigger steeples, bigger audiences. But children, they live out of this position of whose they are over what they've done. And I wonder if Christianity is returning to us this delight again of who you're with and where you're going rather than what you've done, what you've achieved. Jesus said this in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So take a moment. Listen to what he's saying here. Allow this idea to get into your heart a little bit further. Jesus says, becoming like a child is not just so that you have a good seat in the kingdom. Becoming like a child means that you enter. Jesus is doing more than trying to help his disciples find out how to get a good seat. He's just trying to get them in. If you don't become like a little child, you won't get in. You won't even enter, Jesus says. So when we are sons and daughters of the king, right, then this pursuit of greatness, it just no longer fits on our lives in the same way that it did. If you don't stay small, if you don't see status and power and prominence differently now, then you haven't gotten in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, which means humility and Christianity come together. They come together, abandoning this quest for self-importance. In other words, if, if you continue self-posturing, if you continue to self-promote, if you continue to rank and adjust and gauge your position and significance and your greatness by other people, then you aren't in the kingdom. And then all of these graphic warnings apply. Right? All of the rest of the passage becomes really a concern. Verse 5 of Matthew 18, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whatever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
That millstone is not just a small stone. It's one of those stones that the, you know, a donkey would push, you know, crushing the grain. Take that giant stone, throw it, put it around your neck, and throw yourself into the sea. So what Jesus is saying is, how do we assess our humility? How, how do we understand our childlikeness? By monitoring how our lives help or hurt those around us. By monitoring how our lives either help or hinder little ones. Jesus says, little ones. He, he moves forward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Many commentators believe that Jesus is broadening this idea right now. That he's not just talking about children four and under. Little ones is this Greek word, micron, where we get the word micro. It, it means the least. It means the insignificant. It means small. Right? So those of low status, those of low rank, the small persons, the least. Whoever just causes one of these to sin, to miss the mark. It'd be better for you to drown yourself. So how, how do we cause these others that are small or insignificant, marginalized, how do we cause them to stumble? Right? That's the question. Oh, how does it, we do that? We isolate them. We withdraw from them. We disassociate ourselves from them. We show them something the kingdom isn't. Right, by the way that we continue to posture, by the way that we think of others as insignificant, right? if we continue to jockey, if we continue to position, if we continue to look for power, you will point the other people who are also marginalized, insignificant, small, towards something other than the kingdom. Jesus is changing what it looks like to win and lose. A lot like upwards basketball. And if you grew up in the if you if you grew up in the 90s or or afterwards, you might have played upward sports at some point. Do you know this? They they turn off the scoreboard in upwards basketball. You don't know who who won the game. They're not keeping track of points, but you know, right? The kids. That's the thing with like, all my kids knew. Even coming up through upwards, they knew by the end of the game which team had won, which team had not, who'd scored points. But Jesus is saying something different about how we think about winning and losing. When he holds up a child. And he sets this child before the disciples. He's saying, winning is not about who you beat anymore. Winning is about who you embrace. It's about who you notice. It's about who you see. That you've been steeped in a culture of rank and keeping score. And winning and losing now is about servanthood. That's the way to be first. Jesus says that the path to greatness is not rejecting the lowly, but it's welcoming them. Important people, man, they're easy to spot. You actually have a built-in radar that if you end up in a group like this over time, you will begin to figure out who's the important people here? Who should I meet that's going to help my career? Who could I talk to that's going to help me kind of better network? Who, who can I meet that's going to make me, a, a, help me in my influence, right? We just have this natural radar for the people that are successful and achievers and the people that are great. And what Jesus is really saying is greatness is moving closer to those that you might miss. That's what greatness looks like. That you not only see them, but you serve them. That greatness in the kingdom of heaven doesn't look like going out, going to look like going up, but it looks like going down. Who are you noticing? The kingdom is built 
on acts and gestures that the world would never, would never exercise, that the world would miss. Jesus is talking about the kingdom being that different, that the kingdom is one that extends dignity to others that would never receive it, that as the Christian kingdom moves forward, that we are picking up and addressing and taking along people that would never be addressed or picked up if the world were in charge. It means we don't demean, we don't marginalize anyone, each person mattering. And our lives are now evaluated, not how you and I lead the crowd, but how we love the individual. Do you hear what Jesus says? He, he, he makes this comment about only if you cause one of these little ones to sin or to stumble. Jesus is so focused in on the person, on the individual, that he says, if you just cause one of all of these little ones, right, better to drown yourself. Jesus' language gets even stronger. Verse 8, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown in eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. Consider for a moment gangrene. If you understand this condition, gangrene is a, is a situation that your body experiences, parts of your body where it loses blood flow. Right? It, the, that extremity, that part of your body begins to die and an infection begins to set in. And when infection sets in, if you don't get rid of the hand or the foot, then the infection can go systemic. That's what Jesus is saying. He's trying to keep this from going systemic. That if you sense anywhere, this pushing in your life, pulling, grabbing, demeaning, isolating, climbing the ladder of success, isolating others, using others for yourself and for your own personal greatness. If you think them small or difficult or unimportant, right? If you think there are greater things for you to do, then pay attention to those that Jesus cares about. Then your sin of pride and partiality will lead you to a burning pile of trash. That's what Jesus is saying. That a life of self-importance, that a life of achieving greatness through acts of power and prominence will lead you to hell. This life wasn't meant to be everything in full. This life wasn't meant to be everything in full. In fact, there is a limiting of our lives now in order that we might experience the fullness of everything in the next life. Jesus is saying, it's better that you walk through this life without a hand or a foot or an eye than miss out on what's next. And so humility and childlikeness, our smallness makes us incredibly aware of sin and a readiness to do something about it, a desire in, a, in us to, to, to move past this sense of greatness and positioning right, into places where we're honest, that we struggle and are weak. Humility takes us to this place. Humility is honest about our assessment that God is great, we are not, and we need saving. That's humility. There is this biblical idea that Jesus came to bring life and to bring it abundantly, and that is true. But where we are right now, we find ourselves in freedom, 
in positions as sons and daughters of the king, limiting our lives so that what is most important, the gospel, what is most important that those would be loved, so it is most important that no one be, that people be served, like that's our life now. And we cut off and limit in other areas so that this could happen. Jesus is saying, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For if you move on from being small, from being humble, from a repentant life, right? If we move on from that, then we move on from God's grace. And all there is for us is separation. All there is for us is hell. Humility keeps us before God in a posture where we say, God, I need you. I'm small. I can't do it all. I don't even want to try to do it all. And God changes the route of how we experience greatness and significance into this place of service and humility. Listen to what Zephaniah 2.3 says. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what is what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Listen, humility then is more than just valuable to the Christian in your morality. Humility is life and death. Humility is life and death. Jesus says this because the kingdom of God is about the first becoming last. And who's the first? Who do we understand as the greatest? It's Jesus. Jesus, the first, Jesus, the greatest, takes on the role of a servant and dies a criminal's death on a cross and becomes last. And as he does, he ushers in a brand new kingdom. And it's not just what Jesus did, but it's now how we also participate in the kingdom, becoming last, being the least, going from great to small. This is what we begin to see. There's a downward movement then of our lives towards serving and offering community and the gospel to others, not continuing in sin, not, not promoting this self-promotion, self-indulgence, this kind of achievement, greatest in the world kind of attitude, because if we do that, we will cause other people who are also small and needy and inadequate and marginalized to think that that's the way to life, and it's not. So don't let our lives cause other people to sin and to stumble. Other people who need God's grace, other people who will never be, uh, never achieve what you achieve, if they believe that they have to do that in order to be loved by God, to be saved, then you're, you're leading them to nowhere. You're giving them nothing to see. Anyone who has received this new family position as a son or daughter of God, your whole relationship to greatness has changed. It's changed for us. In other words, if you see your status now as a gift, a gift from God, it keeps you in this place of receiving. Tim Keller says that humility is the most relaxing of postures. Because when you're humble, you realize you're small and God is great. And your life becomes one of receiving God's goodness. Not trying to achieve or win his approval, but knowing that you need help, knowing that you can be saved. I love this idea. You, you can't affect your rebirth. You being born in the kingdom is a work of God. God does that. 
just like your natural birth was something that you were not a part of. Your, your birth into the kingdom of God is something that God does, but you becoming childlike is something that you can do. You becoming small, taking on the role of a servant, being humble, is something that you get to do every day. You can be a kid every day. And this is what Jesus holds out to us, that we pray for this miracle of childlikeness. We pray not just once, but we pray repeatedly, day after day, God, keep me small. Keep me like a child. Keep me before you humble. And you're humble when you are no longer trying to protect your personhood or image. But it's not about your reputation at that point. It's not about what you've done or achieved. You're not, you're not looking to be recognized for those things. But that person who's humble is looking only to the gaze of God, not the world. A person who's humble has a sense of humor. When you find yourself at the end of the line and no one seems to notice you, you realize that God notices you even if the world doesn't. There's nothing that we deserve that pushes us towards the front of the line. A person growing in humility also knows that if the world never sees you, never gives you value, you have a greater value in the eyes of God through Christ than anything the world could ever give you. That, the humble person's growing towards that. Did you know that humility was a life or death dynamic happening in you? Did you know that you have to put off pride, that God resists the pride and the proud? We, we, we don't walk forward with God unless we become like a kid and we become small. And that's the miracle of what the gospel does in our lives. It changes us from this holiness of God and then experience of our own sin and gap between those two and then the grace of God that comes and changes and touches all of that, keeping us humble forever, keeping us realizing that everything is a gift forever, keeping us small forever. Let's pray. As we close, I just want you to consider that God's way for himself, his way for Jesus, and his way for his spirit, and even for his disciples, is, is down. The down is the way up. And when we realize that, it's, it's why that only real believers, true Christians, can swim against the current of the world and believe that we are cutting off the old ways because a whole new full life has come. Isaiah 62 says, Thus says the Lord, This is the man to whom I will look, he that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So God, help us to be humble this morning. Help us to leave behind those hopes and pursuits of achievement and self-importance. Let us see where we have any issue of pride in our life and let us repent. Help us to turn from it. Help us to see that the gift of salvation 
from the greatest of all, Jesus, who became least so that we might live. It's something that we continue to treasure, continues to define, continues to transform our hearts and our lives. Lord, if there is any area right now that just you are even bringing to mind, areas where we have neglected, where we've caused others to stumble, where we've shown them something other than the kingdom, God, could we just confess that to you this morning and be changed, be helped, and be renewed in this really amazing position that we now have as sons and daughters of the King. We pray this in your name. Amen.